their way, uh, I encourage you to make your way to the book of Ezra. Okay? That's in the clean part of your Bible. Uh, the front half. Alright? Um, uh, if you have trouble finding it, uh, it's after Chronicles, before Psalms. Um, but um, as you're making your way there, just, a, just something real quick. Uh, I have a challenge for all of our parents. And if you have if you have children, uh, aged uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, uh, one thing that we're excited about, Karen and I are excited about, we hope, and we hope that all of you will be excited about, um, is that Karen and I are going to uh, try to relaunch our uh, children's Sunday school class together. We're going to be using a curriculum called. See if this sounds familiar. The biggest story. Um, Bible story um, curriculum, okay, that walks through 104 stories of, uh, of the Old and New Testament and uh, helps uh, little ones to see how does the whole Bible fit together and how does it point to Jesus, right? Like I say, this ought to sound familiar to you. Um, but in any case, what we're doing is, uh, is we're going we're to um, try to relaunch our children's Sunday school class if you're a parent and you have kids that age, we encourage you to bring your kids. And then while they're there at Sunday school, we have a special deal for you. You can go to Sunday school also. <laughs> and uh, there are classes uh, for adults uh, that already meet during Sunday school. A uh, new one is starting off next week uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, Natalie Berger has got one going for ladies. Uh, down the hall in uh, the old library room uh, that's uh, Tony Evans' study, a really good one. Um, but you can join Earl Green for Romans uh, with me for a couple of weeks, or um, uh, and then we will duck out on the 29th and, uh, and, and launch things for our younger ones. And then um, uh, you adults can either... Um, Either join Romans, or you, if you're, uh, if you're one of our women, you can join Natalie. Um, but we encourage you to take that opportunity. We're we're big on discipleship, and we're big on helping you disciple your kids to know, love, and obey Jesus. And this is part of our effort to help do that. So it's going to be exciting. Going to be lots of fun. Uh, it won't look like me up here. Uh, first of all, I have Karen with me. That adds a whole different dynamic. But also, the kind of stories and teaching that we do will be different. There'll be crafts and activities and so forth for kids. So, if you've participated in BBS, that'll it'll look more like that and less like this than um, than uh, than what you're used to. So, uh, so that's coming up on the 29th. Uh, today's a, a pretty exciting day for me. Uh, yesterday was the 28th. Uh, no, yeah, 28th anniversary of the day I asked Karen to marry me, and uh, I'm really happy she said yes all those years ago. Um, you can pray for her. Uh, sometimes I'm not sure if she thinks she got the muddy end of that stick, um, but also I have, uh, I have three of my oldest friends here with me again. Uh, we've been friends for 32 years, um, and they're seated right behind Karen, and I love them. Uh, these are some of the best men I know. And uh, 
you want all the good stories about what Pastor Joe was like as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, they have them. So anyway, uh, with that encouragement, let's look at the book of Ezra. As we're moving through here, uh, we're going through the greatest story ever told. And we begin in creation, and we see how God made the world perfect. Uh, Humanity fell into sin in that perfect creation, and sin multiplied to a point where uh, God destroyed the world in a flood, uh, except for Noah and his family. And then as they came out of the flood, the world has kind of got a new start, but the people in it are still sinners. And so sin increases, and nations begin to form and spread out. And God chooses one particular moon-worshipping fella from, uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans, and tells him, go to a land I'll show you, and there I'll make you a great nation, and I will multiply you, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That, he, that one particular guy, Abraham, founds a nation. And God is going to have a people for himself through that nation. And the blessing to all nations that God promised way back in the garden when people fell into sin is going to come through that guy. The deliverer the snake crusher, uh, the person whom God is going to reverse the curse and sin is going to come through that family. And so then uh, you read the, uh, if, if you read the book of Genesis, it reads like a, a really bad soap opera. Honestly, there's a whole bunch of family drama that goes on. Um, you know, it is an R-rated book uh, in terms of what occurs in that family. Uh, and eventually, uh, Abraham's grandson Jacob winds up with 12 sons who become 12 tribes who become the nation of Israel. That nation goes into slavery in Egypt until Charlton Heston, I mean Moses, comes (laughs) and leads them out, right? And then then they get to Sinai. They They receive the law of God, a covenant with God for how to walk with Him, including uh, laws about what to do when you don't walk with God. Right? How to offer sacrifice and how to be have your sin uh, forgiven and how to be reconciled to God even though you aren't going to obey what God told you to do. And then you go into the period of Joshua and the judges and the conquest of the land and a period of time when everybody does whatever is right in their own eyes and it's a mess. And then eventually you get out of that time of the kings and the prophets and these guys, uh, the kings are supposed to rule well and, and direct people back to, the, to obedience to the law. And the prophets are supposed to call people to repentance. And despite all of that, the kings are bad. People don't listen to the prophets. And the nation goes into exile. And so that brings us to where we are today in this story. And where we are today is that the entire nation the southern kingdom called Judah with its capital in Jerusalem was, de- was deported to, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. when they finally carried everybody off. All that was left was the kingdom of, of the kingdom of Judah was slightly over 4,000 people in the city of Jerusalem itself. That was all that was left. And then uh, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians uh, 200 years earlier, approximately 722 B.C. 
And after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, people of Judah are told this. In fact, if you'd stand as I read uh, God's word here for us from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar ah, bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, our Father, we who uh, are largely Gentiles nevertheless cry out to you this morning on behalf of your people Israel who are in trouble this morning. Maybe not quite to the extent they were in the days of the exile. But nevertheless, under deep threat, we ask for your mercy for them. And Father, we also ask for us who live, in a sense, still in exile, a long way from home. That you would remind us that you are with us this morning. And that no matter what happens, that we as believers, this life is the worst that we will ever experience. And everything in this life will be replaced with something much better. And Father, we ask your mercy and your grace, your Holy Spirit's empowerment to understand and hear your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, well, um, that sounds pretty encouraging, right? The decree of Cyrus goes out, you can go back home. And here's the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took when you went into exile, and you can rebuild the temple, and I'll even fund it. How about that? How about that? That God is going to make a pagan king pay for 
the rebuilding of his temple after a previous pagan king destroyed it. God is going to cause a pagan king to rebuild it. Well, the thing is, though, is that despite the fact that this is encouraging news, the story of the, of the Old Testament is really the story of an exile that really didn't end. At least didn't end in the way that Israel expected. The book of Ezra, if you read it, uh, is the story of how God enabled the exiles of Israel to return to the promised land 70 years after they were exiled uh, to Babylon. It's written by Ezra the priest who went back later after the, this first wave of exiles returned to teach the people. But if you pay attention to the portion of Scripture that we just read, there's only two tribes that are mentioned as going back in addition to the priests and Levites. Tribe of Judah, tribe of Benjamin, priests and Levites. What happened to the others? They stayed in exile. The total number of exiles who return is just over, when they add them all up in chapter 2, just over 42,000 men, women, and children. Which when you think about, well, there were 4,000 deported from uh, Jerusalem uh, at the end of, uh, of Chronicles, well, that 42,000 sounds pretty good. But when you consider that of the number who went out of Egypt when the nation was formed, there were 603,000 just men who came out of Egypt. Besides the women and children, this is a tiny little fragment, a remnant, if you will, of the nation, right? And with that remnant, not everything is good. The group that comes back does successfully rebuild the temple, but it's much, much smaller than the one that Solomon built. In fact, both Ezra, if you read it, and the prophet Haggai, um, I don't know how many of you have your devotions in Haggai each morning, probably not many of you, um, but the prophet Haggai is sent to these exiles to tell them, hey, Y'all are rebuilding your houses. How about you rebuild my house? It's about time to rebuild the temple. But when they do, the old guys, the people who were still around that had seen Solomon's temple when it was still standing, that come back among the exiles, you know what they do? They weep. Because they go, this is not what we were expecting at all. When they see the, the footprint, the foundation of this, they go, yeah, this isn't looking like it's going to be as grand as, uh, as the one that we left here 70 years ago. And in fact... Uh, if you look in that list of the temple articles, you'll notice some, something if you're paying attention. There's no mention at all of the pillars of the temple. And they were giant bronze pillars at the front of the temple. In fact, every king of Israel was, uh, was crowned king between those two pillars in the temple. They're gone. 
They don't come back. There's also no mention of the bronze altar, the wash basin, this giant bronze bowl that sat on 12 bowls, uh, 12 bulls um, in the middle where the priest washed up. That's gone. That doesn't go back. There's no mention of the golden lampstand from the Holy of Holies. Uh, no mention of the table of showbread. No mention of the altar of incense. Uh, no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. All of these things are missing. Something else is also missing. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, it's this, it's this gripping account. Ezekiel, the prophet, is having these visions of Jerusalem, even though he's not there. He has a vision of Jerusalem from exile. And what he sees is the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord's presence lift off of the temple. Now remember, the Shekinah glory led them through the wilderness. Led them through the Red Sea crossing, was with them all through the book of Exodus, with them through the wilderness wandering, with them as they came into the land, with them the entire time the tabernacle and the temple stood. But in Ezekiel 10 and 11, you see the, the, the glory presence of the Lord lift off the temple and then kind of linger over Jerusalem and then cross the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives and disappear. And when the temple is rebuilt and they rededicate the temple, what they're expecting is the glorious presence of God will return, just like it did in Solomon's day when they dedicated the temple. But guess what? It doesn't show back up. On top of that, the descendants of David that return is a guy named Zerubbabel. You'll see him in the lists uh, down there in uh, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, but he's not really a king. He's the appointed governor under the Persian emperor. And he is governor of a city that is mostly a ruin. A bit later on, Nehemiah is appointed governor and he comes back and he leads the people to eventually, eventually rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But these walls that Nehemiah built aren't anything like the kind of fortifications that stood in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had to besiege the city of Jerusalem that only held a few thousand people. He had to besiege that city for over two years to take it. And so Nehemiah gets walls up, but they're kind of, in fact, their enemies kind of make fun of them. They're like, yeah, that's a wall, but if a fox went up on it, it would fall down. So the walls are not quite the same kind. You know, keep your friends and neighbors from breaking in. But repel an enemy that's determined? Well, maybe not. On top of that, there are other bigger problems. Many of the Israelite men, see if this sounds familiar, start intermarrying with Canaanite women and with other foreign women that were living in the land. And they then, because of that, 
start worshiping other gods alongside the Lord. Which is one of the big reasons why they got exiled in the first place. Because when you marry an unbeliever and your children become unbelievers, all of a sudden, you and everybody around you starts to also become an unbeliever. Ezra tells everybody who intermarried to divorce these foreign women, but it's still a problem later on. During Nehemiah's second trip as governor, he has to do the same thing again. And say, look, you guys, if you continue to marry non-believing women, you are going to continue to invite God's curse on you that got us exiled to start with. Why have you not learned anything? The children of these guys by Nehemiah's day can't even speak Hebrew. And of course, that's a problem because they can't read the Scriptures. They can't read or speak Hebrew. At this time, it doesn't exist in any other language. One of the Ammonite men who had been... Uh, Nehemiah's worst enemy had most strongly opposed the rebuilding of the city walls as by the time Nehemiah ends taken up residence within the temple itself. The people are not only ignoring the Sabbath day, but they also are refusing to give the offerings required to support the Levites. So it's a mess. A lot of the Levites are like, well, look, I'd love to serve at the temple, but i got to feed my family, so i got to go work in the fields outside of town so that we can eat. And so all these problems are just persistent. And really, that's how the Old Testament kind of ends. It's on kind of a downbeat note. With Israel and Jerusalem and the temple rebuilt, but not as an independent nation and not a particularly godly nation on top of that. God will raise up prophets to speak to the people after the exile, but the nation is still not completely restored. After the Persian Empire falls, by the way, who does it fall to? It falls to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And uh, after, after Alexander dies as a young man, uh, his generals divide up his empire. Uh, one of them is a guy named Seleucus. Uh, you don't need to know that, but he rules over Syria to the north. And there's another guy named Ptolemy uh, who rules over Egypt to the south. And where the fringes of their empire intersect is right in the nation of Israel. And so they fight back and forth over the, this area for hundreds of years. Uh, eventually, you get a guy with the best name in all of the world, uh, he is known to history as Judas Maccabeus. It translates to Jude the Hammer. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that's a great name. You're either like a bull rider or a professional soldier, one or the other. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but Jude the Hammer and his sons throw out the, uh, the remnants of the Greek Empire and they reestablish an independent kingdom for a while. But there's no... Davidic king there. 
And then they get to intermarrying with foreigners again. And then one of them, an Edomite, named Herod the Great, gets himself appointed king by the Roman Empire and gets himself, uh, essentially, he becomes a vassal of the Roman Empire and all of the region here is kind of subsumed under the Roman Empire and Israel loses its independence once again. And that's actually the situation where the, when the New Testament begins. Because with the nation still oppressed, still ruled by foreigners, still with a problem of intermarrying with foreign people, losing their faith, losing their identity, losing their nation. And so things are rebuilt, but not restored. Now, um, we're going to get into more of the story of where Jesus comes into this beginning next week. Because beginning next week, we'll actually get into the New Testament thoroughly. Um, but what I want you to see today is that Jesus' life and death and resurrection bring about the beginning of the end of exile. Uh, if you look at the last prophet of your Old Testament, he writes 400 years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, he prophesies, tucked in just a couple of verses, chapter 3, uh, chapter 4 of Malachi, he makes a prophecy that God will send another prophet, one more prophet, a prophet like Elijah, who will prepare the way for Messiah and call the nation to repentance in a way that will lead to their full restoration as a nation. And if you know the Gospels, you know that John the Baptist was the first fulfillment of that promise. I believe, according to Revelation, there will be a later fulfillment also, where one in the power of Elijah will also come to prepare the way for the return of Jesus. Um, but um, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this if you can accept it. Right? In other words, um, John the Baptist was Elijah, according to Malachi, if you can handle it. If you're not listening, then he wasn't. There'll be another one. Right? Um, but he goes ahead of Jesus to prepare the way before him. And I will have obviously more to say about that when we get to the Gospels next week. But for now, I want to call our attention to the ways in which Jesus' life and death and resurrection are the beginning of the exile's end. Uh, first, when Jesus goes into the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the synagogue at the, in his hometown and he repeats Isaiah's words from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, which are about the end of exile. This is what he says. This may be familiar to some of you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus does this, what He's telling them is, I am the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about. I am the one who sets captives free. I'm the one who gives freedom to the oppressed. I'm the one who heals. 
I'm the one who fulfills all these things. And though the people of Nazareth do not believe him, in fact, they, they don't believe him so hard they try to throw him off a cliff outside of town, Jesus does what he says. Jesus gave the blind their sight among thousands and thousands of other miracles that He did. He preached the good news to the poor. He proclaimed the year of God's favor had come. He set free the captive and those oppressed by sin and Satan and death through His own death and resurrection. And on top of that, when His disciples asked Him after the resurrection about when the kingdom would be restored to Israel, remember this is what He says in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and they say to him, uh, Lord, is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, hey, we know you're the restoration. We know that this has gotten started. Is this it? Come on, Jesus, say yes. <laughs> okay, that's what they're saying. Jesus, didn't, Jesus did not say, well, hey, that isn't going to happen. You don't understand. What he said was, it's not for you to know when. And in the meantime, you have a job to do of making disciples of all nations. And Paul also points out this assignment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he explains that Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. In other words, that we who put our faith in Jesus are now at peace with God. That's what reconciled means. I don't know if you know this, but... But before you put your faith in Jesus, you are effectively at war with God. And what God does is He says, I tell you what I will do. I will, I will send My Son to die for what you did. And then if you believe in Him, then we will be at peace. We'll sign the peace treaty in His blood. And I'll raise Him to life so that He doesn't face the penalty of things for which he is not guilty on a permanent basis, but nevertheless, I will wipe out your penalty in his death. He's reconciled us to God. Uh, and he's also given us, as part of that, the message of reconciliation, even while we are still living as exiles away from home. You are not home yet. I know that is not a shock to you, right? But in the sense of, of the fact that while we are away from the Lord, we are not at home. And Paul makes that very clear in 2 Corinthians 5, that when we're away from the Lord, we're not home yet. But while we're not at home, we have a job to do. And that is to proclaim the gospel of reconciliation to everyone who will listen to it and receive it. That Jesus is the beginning of the end of exile. That He is the way home. And He is the true end of exile for Israel and for us and for people of every tribe, every nation, every language, every people group. That this world that we live in is essentially the time of our exile when we're not at home. But when we put our trust in Jesus, we start the road there. And if you want to join me on the road, come on. This is the way. Uh, believe it or not, we are already experiencing some of the end of our exile. Now, I want to point this out to you. 
If you look at the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 4, okay, if you want to even turn there, I can read some of this to you. Um, this is good stuff. Uh, verses 11 to 22, uh, Paul talks about how Jesus has, re has rebuilt a temple. Uh, we'll just skip down to verse 19, chapter 2 of Ephesians. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens or exiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy what? temple in the Lord. In Him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, you can't see this in English, but the, well, the word that talks about the dwelling place of God and the temple is the, the Greek word naos. Okay? There are two words for temple. One refers to the temple structure, but the naos is the, the inner place, the holy of holies, the place where God's presence dwells. When did God's glorious presence return to Jerusalem? Anybody know? Acts chapter 2. What did the people see when the Spirit of God came upon them? They saw tongues of fire above individual people's heads. Why? To let people know that the glorious presence of God had returned not to the building, but to the people who are the dwelling place of God. And this is what Peter, I mean, what Paul is saying here. That as God is building His church out of people who believe in Jesus, it is the dwelling place of God. It is the place where the Shekinah glory, if you will, dwells. Where the Spirit of God is. So for example, when you come to church, you don't have to like get quiet in this room. Like, well, God lives in there. Pretty sure he, we're keeping him in that sanctuary in there, right? No. Okay. God dwells in the people you meet in the hallway and in the parking lot. Dwelling place of God is in your brother and sister who are with you. The sanctuary of God is believers in Jesus Christ. So, in other words, the exile, the end of exile is already beginning because God is rebuilding His temple, the one in which He dwells. Not the structure, the people. In addition to that, uh, so there's a sense in which there's, these things are already being fulfilled, right? That Jesus is ending the exile. He is rebuilding things for us. But there's also a not yet to God's promises. Amen? We haven't yet experienced all that will one day come. One day, Jesus will reign as King over this whole world for a thousand years. And when He does, I love this promise. I read it every year at Christmas, but I, it's worth reading every day. 
especially on a day like today when there is war in the world. This is what Isaiah says. I love it. Every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Every spear will become a pruning hook. Every sword beaten into a plowshare and men will study war no more. The lion will lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the baby goat. The little child will safely play by the hole of the venomous snake. The whole world will be peaceful. As Ezekiel prophesied, the, the dry and dead bones of the nation of Israel will be raised to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And she will enjoy her Messiah alongside the rest of the world as Jesus completes the task He has already begun of making one new people of both Jews and Gentiles tearing down the walls that separate us. And even better than that, at the end of all things, Jesus Himself will make the world entirely new. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be nothing evil that exists. And death and pain and mourning and tears will be replaced by complete joy. Eternally and forever. Now, you know what I think is the best part about the story of the Old Testament? The fact that God never gives up. Every single person in the Old Testament is a disappointment in one way or another. They are. If you think the, the Bible is a story of good and godly people doing good and godly things, it's because you have not read it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Everyone in there is a disappointment in one way or another. Right? They're all sinners. They're all failures in, in all kinds of different ways. Some of them uh, in like dark chocolate ways, right? Some of them a little more vanilla, but a lot of them like, you know, 90% cocoa. <laughs> okay? Um, God never says this. He never says, that's it. I'm washing my hands of you completely. I'm done. No. The story of the Old Testament is a God of, who is faithful and steadfast love. Who is always giving a new start to every single person who wants one. And I want to encourage us all this morning with the truth that that has not changed. That God still does exactly that thing. That He is steadfast in His love. I'll give you just one example from your Old Testament. Um, I don't know if Josh talked about him or not. I can't remember if he talked about Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. He is the longest reigning king of the nation of Israel. He is also the very worst one. The worst. Everything his dad had got rid of in terms of idolatry and so forth, Manasseh built back and doubled down on. And yet, when he experienced God's judgment, you know what he did? He repented. It was because of Manasseh and all of his sins that he led the nation into that God said, exile's coming because of you. 
And when Manasseh repented, God forgave. Isn't that good? He's the worst guy they ever had. But when he repented, God forgave. Maybe you've never known the Lord at any point in your whole life. And you feel like you've been living in exile from His presence the entire time you've been breathing. And if that's true for you, you're wondering if God will accept you. I have such good news for you. The answer to that question is yes. He will come into your life and He will help you rebuild the ruins of the wreckage that you have built so far. The rebuilding that Jesus brings into your life will be better than the returning exiles ever knew. His presence will come into your soul in a way that it didn't come into the rebuilt temple. And He will make of the ruins of your life something more glorious than what you've had before. All you have to do is put your trust in Him today to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life. And in the moment that you believe that, guess what you get? The new life He promised. And Jesus will come in and He will start where you are in the process of rebuilding out of the wreckage. Give you a new life. Maybe you're a person who gave your life to Jesus a long time ago, but you're struggling and you're beaten down. Like the returning exiles of old, you look around your life and you feel deep disappointment and frustration. Maybe you're even angry. Maybe there's some anger even at God. By the way, let me just encourage you. There are 150 psalms in the, old, in the book of Psalms, you know how many of them are laments where people are complaining and or angry at God? 75%. So if you're feeling frustrated, angry, hurt, and disappointed, you've got good, you've got good prayers to pick from to express how you feel to the Lord. Okay? 75% are laments. Maybe your health is failing. Maybe someone you love is dying. Maybe that sin that you fought your whole life still seems to be winning. Whatever the circumstances, remember this. Your story isn't over. If things are hard, it's because we're still waiting for the hero to ride in. Things are dark in your story because the story is not over yet. But know this in the meantime, that God has not left you. He is faithful. And His, stead, His steadfast love is carrying you even as you sit in what feels like ashes. If you have fallen into sin again, Today is a new day. Confess and repent and rise to your feet forgiven. You know what the words of the Christian life are when you are 
when you screwed up for the thousandth time or ten thousandth time, begins again. Start over. Repent, confess, be forgiven, and keep going. If your circumstances are tough, remember and do not forget that Jesus is with you. He knows your pain. He has suffered in every way like we do. He knows pain. He knows death. The risk of sounding like a Nike commercial. Jesus knows pain. Jesus knows death. He knows betrayal. He knows suffering. He knows rejection. He knows hurt. And so pour out your heart to the one whose heart literally bled for you and for yours. Find peace and healing for your broken heart. Find help in His presence. You are not forgotten. You are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath you are God's own everlasting arms carrying you through to the day when our life as exiles ends. When the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the King, Jesus Christ, reigns forever and banishes everything sad from the world forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we long for the end of exile. We know that when we are here in this world, that we are away from You. And that while You've given us a mission to carry out, a quest to fulfill, that the process of doing that is obstacle-filled and hard and painful. And we do not know that we can get it done. Father, we know that You are with us by Your Holy Spirit every single moment of every single day. And that the Hero is coming for our deliverance. And one day, exile will end and we'll be home. Father, I do pray that if anyone here has never put their faith in Jesus, and they're sitting today in the ruins of their wrecked life, that getting their own way all this time has bought them. Father, I pray they put their faith in Jesus and find new life. And if anyone out there today is hurting or in pain or struggling or wondering where you went, Father, I pray that you would remind them that they are not forgotten, that they are loved, that you are with them, and that you are carrying them home. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.